ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. We're live and we've got a great show for you today. If you want to join in the conversation, you can on the phone, on the web, and on Twitter. As usual, we're covering all kinds of fascinating topics. This summer season is back, and I know a lot of us can't wait to get out there and get active. Well, today, we're talking with a physician who takes active to whole new levels. That's me. Sure it is. From running ultra marathons. That's me. To setting world records in underwater piano playing. That's me. To discovering the gene for fitness. Not me. That is definitely not you. Dr. Hugh Montgomery from the University College London doesn't know the meaning of the word can't. That's can't. If you want to join us in talking about Dr. Montgomery's latest work at the Institute for Human Health and Performance, call in or email. Our number is 888-MD-1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. And our email, sol at reachmd.com. And don't forget to hit us on the web at Facebook or Twitter. And call us from England, everybody. What else is on, your mi- on our minds today? How about a geneticist who claims he's created synthetic life? We'll give you the details. You decide if it's for real. Also, what do the FDA, AAP, and hot dog vendors have in common? Stay tuned for that one. And we'll look at the current ReachMD poll, all about Health 2.0 tools. We're going to get you up to speed with the latest on so-called Health 2.0. And we'll add another page to our archive of unforgettable clinical cases. This week, we'll look back at a physician who performed the first successful appendectomy on himself. On himself. All this and a few other surprises on this week's Second Opinion Live. Our number again, 888-MD1-REACH. Give us a call. All right, first up, our regular feature, Curious Headlines. Today we have a story that's also just in time for summer. All right. The American Academy of Pediatrics is calling for warning labels and a design overhaul to be put on, of all things, hot dogs. <laughs> hot dogs. Hot dogs, That man. is right, Michael. The New York Times and others are reporting on the AAP's released policy statement on food hazards. They're now calling on the FDA for uniform warning labels on hot dogs, not just because of the sodium or fat contents, mind you, or because they're made from meats you'll never find at the deli, but rather because hot dogs are a notorious choking hazard for kids under five. Yeah, remember that scene in Field of Dreams. Absolutely. Well, from the statement's release, that sounds like a massive understatement. A recent paper in the journal Pediatrics reported that hot dogs are involved in about get ready for this, mm-hmm. 17% of all food-related choking incidents. Uh. One author of the AAP statement says that if you were to try to design the perfect plug for a child's airway, it would be a hot dog. Absolutely. And I wouldn't disagree with that. So the business magazine, Fast Company, came up with several ideas for non-cylindrical hot dogs, yeah. <laughs> including a coil and an anvil-like shape with grooves for condiments, what some are calling thinking outside the bun. Wamp, wamp. <laughs> but uh, many have pointed out that we could just cut up the hot dog. I mean, a lot of people are saying, why don't you just cut up the hot dog? Why don't you just not eat the hot dog? It's so bad <laughs> for you. Even better. Well, regardless of what we do, get ready for this. The president of the National Hot Dog and Sausage Council. There's such a thing? There is. Spoke to the New York Times of the proposed redesign. In her words, it's not going to happen. So will a warning will be enough? We have an association here, the Second Opinion Live Association. I'm the president. Can I be the vice president? Nope. You're nothing. You're not not in the organization. The water lackey. I don't care. It's just me. (laughs) Well, listen, this is still a big deal, though, because young children obviously have small airways. They don't have the adult teeth necessary to grind down food safely. I mean, parents really do have to watch out what they're eating, like popcorn, I mean, all sorts of things, nuts. Don't feed your kids hot dogs. They're not healthy to begin with. Yeah, I think that's probably Stay away from them. 
All right. Well, why don't we change gears and talk about a classic clinical case that'll give our listeners a new definition of resolve. And I mean that, resolve. So imagine being the one and only surgeon on a team stuck in the most remote, inhospitable place on Earth. Our studio? Antarctica, but oh. close. Don't ask, don't ask why you're there. Just, just go with me on this one. Now, imagine you suddenly come down with a high fever and upper abdominal pain that tracks down to the right lower quadrant. Now, you know that's acute appendicitis. I do, even as a dermatologist, even as a dermatologist I know that. You know that. And you know it isn't going to go away. So you ask yourself, would you put yourself under the knife and try to perform your own appendectomy? Well, our listeners need to know that this really happened to a young Russian surgeon who was stationed on a base in Antarctica way back in 1961, mm. before you were born, Matt. And I'll give you a spoiler alert here. The case was recently published in the British Medical Journal by his grown-up son, so clearly things turned out okay for the man. Mm. But here's what he dealt with. In his private journal, he wrote, have to think this through, the only possible way out to operate on myself. It's almost impossible, but I can't just fold my arms and give up. So you know what came next. And by the way, mm -hmm. this is child's play taking out your own appendix. I took two nevi off my leg myself You one took day. two nevi off by I, yourself. I did. I jammed the syringe in and did it. That is disturbing on so many levels. I yeah, I know that. <laughs> well, this guy got three of his comrades to sterilize a room, give him a local anesthetic, and just stand there with a couple of lights and a mirror. Can you imagine that? Well, he proceeded to take out his own appendix, oh my God. mainly by feel. And get this, in less than two hours, he had it out and the wound stitched up. And within a week, he was fully recovered. That's unbelievable. It's socialized medicine. He used a mirror, so he had to reverse <laughs> what he was doing, watch himself. <laughs> watch it backwards. I could take a mole off my leg. I could not take my appendix out. I would just write in my journal, well, bye, everybody. <laughs> it's been it's, good. It's been nice and just throw me out on well, the Well, I have ice. to think that thousands of others, you know, in such a situation over the millennia probably come to the same situation. So this is one person who actually underwent his own surgery. And when asked about his decision and self-operation mm -hmm. years later, he just said, it was a job like any other, a life. I don't have a Russian accent here. A life like, a life like any other, comrade. Wow. That's very humble. So it's a job like any other, a life like any yeah, other. Yeah, take your opinion. I'm doing liposuction now while we're sitting here. I am doing a liposuction on myself, I want you all to know, <laughs> with anesthetic. <laughs> well played. But you should know, this is not the first time we've heard about a doctor performing self-surgery. I mean, there was an American physician, Dr. Jerry Lynn Nielsen, who worked at the South Pole. She administered her own breast cancer biopsy in 98. And we, I think we've heard other stories about self-amputations, et cetera. Okay, don't eat hot dogs and don't go to the South Pole. It seems that's to it. be the common that's factor. That's it. And yes. especially don't eat hot dogs in, in the, the South, South Pole. Pole. I think that's, that's a terrible thing because if you have <laughs> stomach problems, you have to get them out yourself. All right, moving on. Time for a smooth transition into something completely different. From do-it-yourself surgery to getting a little help from the web. Let's turn to the ReachMD poll. That's the South Pole. And this week's topic, Health 2.0. Yeah, Health 2.0. And you thought batting 1,000 on Health IT was good. But we're doubling the good stuff. This sounds bionic, Matt. <laughs> well, do, 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 not do. so much, but uh, close, close. Because these are beefed up web tools that are going to become more important to practice in the near future. Now, Michael, let's just admit that both of us are closer to Health 0.5 rather than 2.0. Can we do that? No, Health 0.0. I'll maybe. go with super. Yeah, maybe 0.7 in my case. So we talked to a guy named Matt. Matthew Holt for the latest updates. Now, Mr. Holt is a healthcare futurist. He's co-founder of the Healthcare Blog and the founder of the Health 2.0 Conference. I think they're going to talk about hot dogs there, too. They've got a whole conference dedicated to this. Yeah, Are you kidding me? I do. That's seriously a relief since we're going to need one to get all this tech information. I need a conference just to explain it to me. Yeah, true that. But uh, 
For right now, all you need to know is that I think Health 2.0 is based on Web 2.0, which a lot of people do understand. Oh, I feel much better now. Yeah, and basically that's the super interactive stuff online that enables us to communicate and share info with each other. So let's say that's Facebook, Twitter, Yelp are all on that list. So Health 2.0 then is the expanding list of collaborative tools as applied to healthcare. I don't know what you just said, but it sounded really good. It makes me sound smart when I say these things. So there's Healthline, there's Right Health, Patients Like Me, which is for consumers, there's Sermo, even using Skype to keep in touch with patients or colleagues. That's all part of Health 2.0. Yes, but more important, can I use my iPhone and is email part of Health 2.0? Email is definitely last decade. That's so behind the times, Michael. But But I have an iPad iPad now. Skype is definitely uh, in the Health 2.0. I Skype. Hmm. Okay. I, I Skype. <laughs> yeah, sure you do. Uh, every you Wednesday go, from 4 to 6. If you go to reachmd.com slash poll, you can hear Matthew Holt talk about all of these healthcare 2.0 tools of the future in more detail. And then you can tell us, are you already using health 2.0 tools? Because we want to hear from you on this one. I think I actually am using health 2.0 tools because I use them to help take off my own moles. So it was health 2.0 tools. I sterilized them and took Nevi, my mole off. Nevi removal Nevi, 2.0, right? absolutely. I bet you did. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, with that discussion of envelope pushing technologies adjourned, let's uh, welcome our guest for this week who truly knows how to push the envelope of working hard and playing hard, Dr. Hugh Montgomery, an avid sea and skydiver, ultramarathon runner, mountaineer, writer, and by the way, distinguished professor of intensive care medicine. Dr. Montgomery is a physician without an off button. He joins us to talk about his activities and research into how the human body responds when it's pushed to the absolute extreme. Don't you wish I had an off button once in a while? I absolutely wish that. Dr. Montgomery, welcome to the program. Hello. Hello. Good to speak to you. All right. The first question, I got to ask this. How did you get the piano underwater and why did you do it and how did you (laughs) play it underwater and what's the point? A world record. What did you play? Oh, well, I'll answer all of those in turn, so, and you won't like much to know the answer either. The, the, the answer to why um, is beer. Oh, that's a great answer. <laughs> that's why I do yeah. the show. Thank it you. It totally leaves one astray, doesn't it? So I think it was probably beer talking, and I said, oh, I could do that to raise some money for a charity. We'll just chuck a piano in a swimming pool and play it underwater and break a world record. And without really thinking it through, because, of course, if you put a piano underwater, the wood swells, dampers don't work, and it won't play. So we ended up uh, going to Yamaha, who make synthesizers. They made us an electronic synthesizer to work underwater. So uh, definitely don't try that one at home, because there'll be (laughs) lots of dead dead drunk people in bars later on. But uh, no, we we had a synthesizer and played it underwater. I was down there for 110 hours. Wait, were you underwater too? Were you in in scuba gear? Yeah, yeah. We we used conventional cylinders. We were going to have a surface feed, but in the end it was cheaper and quicker just to... You were under there 110 hours solidly? Uh, yeah, five minutes an hour you're allowed out. Okay, um, I was going to say, how did you eat? Is there any way to feed underwater? Right? <laughs> no, I've tried. Krill. He was, he was in, taking krill in through his mask. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely, exactly, a filter feeder. No, um, yeah, five minutes an hour you're allowed out, and you can stack them up so you can get half an hour every six. Fantastic. I would have thought they might have just had to put an IV in you. you know, <laughs> well, right. it might have been a lot simpler. Um, yeah, we, we did it well. We had pot plants, so, you know, plastic plants, and uh, we got a, a local tailoring company to do the full tails and gloves experience. Um, yeah, it went quite well. We raised, raised quite a lot of money. It was a you know, typical sort of charity. Yeah, what did event. you play? Um, well, at the start, I played a vast array of things um, and of course for when television cameras were there of course it had to be things like handles of water music but um, as the, the the days wore on 
the notes, not surprisingly, started packing up, and what one could play became increasingly limited. And I think by the last morning, I think we had three functioning notes left. So. <laughs> <laughs> this was a very simple song. That's right. Yeah, it was a, it was a very that's right, it, was a, it was very oriental music. Yeah. <laughs> well, why don't we? I mean, we've diverted long enough. We got to get to the real meat of the matter. And it looks like your work and your recreation are at least partially aligned, if I might say so, with a the theme yeah. of meeting extreme challenges. So how did you come to take so much interest in extremes? Well, uh, I, I suppose in the end it's like the artificial and one that combines one's passions with one's other passions, both work and play. Um, so yes, I'd been a diver um, commercially before I did medicine and was a, mainly involved in archaeological diving, uh, then went into medicine ended up doing some skydiving and then going back to mountaineering and so forth. And I started seeing some of the parallels between the extreme envelope physiology, um, particularly, for instance, high-altitude hypoxia, and the extreme uh, envelope physiology that we were seeing on intensive care units, and started seeing that actually unpicking disease can be very difficult, particularly in an intensive care patient. Everything you measure will be abnormal. And what caused what to be abnormal is almost impossible to unravel. Whereas if you can drive people in a, in a controlled situation where you've got taking otherwise well people and just changing one thing, it allows you to unpick the mechanisms of disease. So we started with uh, using army recruits, looking at what caused hearts to grow. We're able to find out what caused hearts to grow using them because they're all essentially same age, same race, same sex and do lots and lots of exercise, and their hearts will grow to a different degree depending on their genes. You can crack what caused that and then flip it back to left ventricular hypertrophy and disease states. And you can do the same for metabolic efficiency and inefficiency in cancers and, and so forth. Okay, Hugh, hold on for one second. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on Reach MD XM 160. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg alongside Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Find us on Twitter at ReachMD or call us by phone, 888-MD1-REACH. We're talking with Dr. Hugh Montgomery, Director of the Institute for Human Health and Performance at University College London. We're, we're speaking overseas now. We're a big-time show. All right, so... Here's my question for you. Obviously, you do these things in your life. How do they reflect back on your medical practice? They must really make your medical practice much richer. Well, yes, they do. Um, and some of it's very direct. Uh, and I suppose the, some of the work with hypoxia particularly, um, I suppose I triggered in 1998 and that I was climbing or failing to climb, as it turned out, at the southeast face of Mount Pumori, which faces Everest. And I'd struggled panting and gasping um, up the mountain from around 4,300 to 5,000 meters on the way to base camp. And it's taken me around four and a half hours. But the next morning, uh, there was a crisis with some trekker nearby who was trying hard to die. So being the team doctor, I ended up having to sort her out and take her down the mountain and then try to get back up before a storm came in so the team could come and pick me up the next morning. And I made it up the same route that I'd taken four and a half hours the day before. And I did that in just under 34 minutes. And I suddenly realized, you know, this can't be down to a simple change in delivery, which is what I was taught at medical school. It's all around EPO and more hemoglobin and breathing a bit harder. It had to be something else. And, yeah, that led to the last 12 years of work on hypoxia really coming down to the fact that, it, you know, oxygen use is about give and take. And actually the take bit is in my view, probably the most important. So, 
yeah, it, it, it's changed the way I practice. Uh, and actually very directly, so the basic science is important, but I now tolerate far lower levels of oxygen on intensive care than I would have done. Um, we took the blood gases, as you may know, just beneath the summit of Everest in 2007 and, and really showed blood gases that you would have thought were completely unsurvivable. Uh, and yet people are walking around up there and cerebrating and functioning fairly what, adequately. What do your peers think about this, those that lead <laughs> comparatively sedentary lives? Do they think that you're uh, over the top? or? Oh, yeah, completely bonkers. I think they, they, they shake their heads. and, and it's, it's compassion, really, I think, isn't it, that, uh, that they put up with it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, have you inspired any staff ultramarathon registrations? Has anybody else kind of flocked over to your cause? Oh, yeah, no, it, it, it's quite fun, actually. We've got a growing um, grouping within UCL. I have to say that I'm not sort of even solely responsible for that. There are others who've, who've taken a far greater lead in forming uh, two colleagues of mine, Forkter Centre for Aviation, Space and Extreme Environment. And people do cluster. There are a lot of us slightly mad people out there who really do still love um, whole human physiology. And this is a, a way in which to practice it. So it's been very successful. Yeah, we have a lot of fun. And it involves a lot of practical research, a lot of lab work and cell work, but it also involves trotting up big hills every now and again or going to hot or cold places. How old are you now? I'm 40, about to be 48. Okay, so what's the big, huge challenge that you really want to do in your life that seems utterly impossible? Uh, if you want the straight answer to that, it's probably... Uh, I only want the straight answer, of course. That's why of I asked course, you the well, question. Completely tangentially, I, the, the one thing I want to have done is to address climate change, actually. That's, that's what I'm actually about, is, is working very hard in environmental matters. So on a, on a personal basis, if I was going to my grave and thinking, you know, success or failure, I'd, I'd judge myself by any success and influence I had in that, really, because it's, uh, it, it's, it's going to cause terrible trouble medically, and I've got an increasing interest in that. But that's, again, slightly probably not what you're interested in. You're probably more no, I am, because <laughs> what I'm relating to is I read the articles. It sounds kind of funny at first, but I realize that you're really on a very deep personal spiritual quest to push yourself and, and see how much life you can live while you're here. Yes, I, I, I deeply regret that, unless one's a Buddhist, I suppose, where you probably get lots of bites of the cherry, or I'll probably come back as a cockroach or a dog, given the way I've lived life till now. Um, the, the life is just too short, isn't it? There's no great romance, I suppose, when one's young, so one sees films and TV, and dying is always a very romantic episode, which is very worthy. And, of course, you and I both know that most deaths are random. They're the roll of the dice, and it just comes down the wrong way for you at the wrong time. And that could happen to me at any time. So I want to have tried to have left the world a better place than I went in, but recognizing that you know, that's not a, a personal I sometimes remind myself by walking down, if you know London, you know, I sometimes walk down to Parliament Square from our university, and I could walk past probably 40 big bronze statues of people on horses. It probably cost the entire GDP of the country to put them there, and no one knows who they were. You know, no one remembers. Once you've gone, the worms get you, and no one will remember you 10 years later. I think the line is that you know, everybody's got to die, but the trouble is most people don't live. Yes, and I think that's, that's absolutely true. Um, and I guess when I was younger, you know, one did have these passions for, for trying to do the things for, for self-indulgence, just because, it, you know, if you're a slight thrill-seeker, you want to go and do all these things. But as one gets slightly older and a little bit more mature, and in my case, have a couple of children, you realize that there are other people around you that you need to be thinking of, and that's probably the legacy I want to leave behind if I can. 
probably not going to succeed, but going to give it a good shot. You're on our show. You've already succeeded. Oh, there you are. Instant marvelous. That's, well, that's this, this, is the, this is the epitome of world experiences. You've hit the big time, Dr. Right. I know. I, I'm feeling this now, actually. I'm, I should actually probably be getting an agent straight away, shouldn't I? <laughs> so should I. <laughs> <laughs> that glow of stardom is just hit you. a lot richer. <laughs> well, listen, I mean, one thing that comes to mind here is this idea of work-life balance that physicians yeah. struggle with across the world, some more than others. And you have some very extreme recreational activities. You also have a family. You have a very accomplished clinical career, having been, um, as we've read, the founder and discoverer of the fitness gene. So there's a lot going on in your life. I mean, my first question is, do you sleep? Or have you had to abandon that in order to make time for all these things? I sleep a little more than I used to. I used to try not to sleep terribly much because, uh, you know, it stopped me doing the other things I wanted to do. And as I get older, though, I do, I do need a bit more sleep. Um, I think the thing that slowed me up a little in terms of other things is, is uh, I suppose, children who, who, who are really the, um, the filler, aren't they? And I, I suppose I used to view it as a bathroom wall. You know, everyone thinks the wall's made of tiles, but there's an awful lot of grouting between the tiles. And I used to use that time. So I used to use the bits between meals and after meals and in the evenings to do things. And I've always felt that it'd be better to participate in something than to watch it. So I'd rather try and learn an instrument than watch someone else play one, for instance. With that attitude, one can get quite a lot into life. Generally. I feel that way about sports, too. I'd rather not watch them. If I'm not playing, I'm not interested. Yeah, yeah I, I completely agree. And We're groutists. I like that. That's a new Yeah, I don't. Groutists, there we are. We've, we've created a new term. I think it's a, a good way of living it. And the other bit which I have to say I'm slightly cross about is the way exercise has turned into uh, a fashion statement and that you have to be an elite athlete to be able to do anything. I mean, I do these sort of long-distance racing things. I always come last, but that's not the point. You know, the point's just going out and giving it a go and having some fun. And I think we've all rather forgotten that right. it is about fun. It doesn't matter whether you win or lose. It's just that you're playing the game. Or that you win. Or that also matters. You win if you win. No, it does not. <laughs> the others lose horribly. You know, I work all the time. I don't even race. It isn't about that. Actually, sports and martial arts are a competition against yourself, learning who you are. Absolutely. Absolutely so. And... I think the same really applies, um, that attitude about enjoying what one's doing to, if I've been successful in some spheres, I think it's because I've, I don't really have any boundaries between work and and pleasure. In fact, I'm minded of a, the youngest of my generation to take a senior post in a teaching hospital. And he, he was very young, early 30s, and he, he was meteoric in his career. But three years down the line, I heard he'd resigned. So I assumed that he'd got some dreadful marital problem or had become ill or was mentally ill or, you know, something dreadful. I phoned him up and said, Bob, you know, what on earth happened? I hear you've resigned. He said, yeah. I said, well, you know, what's the problem? What can I do? He said, yeah, Hugh, I just woke up one morning and it felt like I was going to work. So he resigned. Interesting. I've heard the definition of success in life is loving what you have to do. That's very good. Who said that? I did. Oh, there you are. <laughs> Someone, no, no, actually, some, I said it now, so I don't, I don't know who told me that, but somebody along the way, and I've always followed that, that that's why I love what I do. And, uh, and what you have to do. And what I have to do. <laughs> it's not work. Going to work as a physician is not work. It's a privilege. It is. It absolutely is. I couldn't agree more. Um, it's sometimes difficult to keep framing one's work in that way because it can be hard, but I agree with you. It's... it's um, it's, I also think negative thoughts are very infectious, and I try and avoid them like the plague. Because it's very, very easy if people grumble around you for you to convince that you're
are also dreadfully hard done by and life miserable. Did you hear that, producer? Stop grumbling at us. <laughs> and just to be clear, Dr. Montgomery, you you had no negative feelings when you were skydiving naked off of a plane at 18,000 feet. <laughs> uh, you have been doing your homework, haven't you? I, I had some very, not as many negative feelings as I'd have nowadays, because it would probably still be on YouTube or something. And that was in Playboy. They did an article about that. <laughs> years ago it was one of my well, favorites well the best part of the story since I, I don't know where you've tracked it down i guess all sorts of stuff must appear on the web but it was a i was out in belgium and they'd hired two belgian air force c-130 hercules transport planes to jump out of so they got very quickly and you can get a lot of people in them and there was a lass called amanda and it was her 500th or thousandth jump or something so she decided that we should launch a naked eight-way star at the back of this aircraft um and we he jumped it. Well, actually, it was a lot higher than 18,000. We, we'd gone a bit higher than we perhaps should have done. Anyway, uh, the formation, of course, didn't work at all. <laughs> Partly because it's very hard to know what you can hold on to. That's what I was going to say, though. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, the formation funneled. Heard canopy deployed at that altitude. The rest of us were in free fall. And anyway, under you know very high altitude in strong upper winds, she landed in France. Um, so not even in the same country. And stark naked with no passport. That's the only way to be in France. Well, listen, thank you. We have to end here. I hope we can get you back on the show. We've been talking to Dr. Hugh Montgomery, Director of the Institute for Human Health and Performance at the University of College London. Hugh, thanks for being a guest, but we have a bigger challenge for you. If you really want to do something ultra, Very come strange. here and do our show with us. It's harder than anything you've ever done. I'm, I'm absolutely certain. I'm sure that it's sackcloth and ashes over there. It's <laughs> awful. It's like running an ultra marathon with Matt here. I'm caked in sweat right now. Yes. Yeah, I bet you are. <laughs> Thanks very much for having me. It's been wonderful. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. Bye-bye. On to the ReachMD Forum, Matt. Uh, this week, we're looking at a recent announcement by genome research pioneer Dr. J. Craig Venter. Venter claims he's created synthetic life, that is to say, a bacterial cell created from genetic material designed and pieced together by a novel computer application. Synthetic life. That's right. That's right. So here are the details. Venter and his team copied the genome from an existing bacterial cell by piecing together the largest strand of synthesized DNA to date into an accurate million-unit loop. Wow, that's big. Then they inserted the DNA inside an empty bacterial cell and watched it replicate into a colony with this substitute DNA. So the new cells are, in effect, man-made. Yeah, but the question, I, I heard the story. The question, since the story's broken, has been, did Venter's team really create life or just modify it? They're using a bacterial cell, an mm -hmm. empty one. It's like putting workers in a factory. The factory's there. Yeah. And, and is there anything new here besides the DNA link? That's the question. That's a good question. I mean, this is complex. I was trying to read through it over and over and over again, and I still was getting confused as to exactly what the claim was in terms of why it would be synthesized life versus just modified life. I know that they pieced together the DNA into a million uh, unit loop, and then they implanted it. So the question is, I mean, does that synthesis of that DNA that's made to be as accurate as possible to the bacterial set they were trying to replicate, does that make it synthesized? Or does that well, mean that they just... whatever they did, this is a serious story. The president's already asked his bioethics commission to report back in six months on all the possible ethical ramifications of this kind of advance. I know we can, like, banter back and forth and say, well, this is life, it isn't life. But these are taking some serious steps. I know they're modifying bacteria for fuel cells, but mm -hmm. what are you going to do to modify other cells? This is heading us down a really exciting chapter. But remember, and a slippery slope. I and mean. a slippery slope. Every exciting chapter has yeah. a dark side. Look yeah. at nuclear power. 
you know? Look at biological weapons. Exactly. Um, that, that could be made from this. Um, so it's definitely, I know we're kind of going to the nth degree, but it's something to think about. We're going to hear more about this story. And I, I have a feeling, though, that this is my personal feeling, that a lot of it's media hype. Um, you know, Venter has a company that makes millions of dollars. I forget one of the uh, fuel companies is giving has a contract to make like $600 million so they can modify bacteria. I worry about announcements like this. Still, I have to tell you, it was the hot topic at the doctor's lounge the other day. Yeah. And I was caught off guard because I didn't watch the news because I was watching The Six Wives of Henry VIII or something while I was working out. And I got the, they've created life. I go like, really? Tell me about it. And I believe in his words, he said something along the lines that this was the first instance of replicating or creating life where the father is a computer. <laughs> yeah. Well, why don't we uh, head over to uh, the next section, because whether we're talking synthetic or biological, let's agree that germs are health threats until proven otherwise. They sure are. Until proven otherwise, which is a perfect setup for this week's Media Roundup. Now, Michael, you know we're always scanning the most reputable sources for medical material. Minute by minute. Minute by minute. So today's clip was taken off YouTube. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> it's a new take on a classic-style public service announcement from the 50s, all about germs, and it comes from none other than the venerable Dr. Weird Al Yankovic. Here's a brief excerpt. Roll it, Tony. How else can we fight this menace? One thing you can do is go to your doctor and have him look up your nose to see if there are any germs hiding there. When you take a shower, be sure to wash everywhere, especially the really stinky parts. And make sure you wash your hands 30 or 40 times a day, or else a giant talking bar of soap will appear in your bedroom one night, and no one will ever hear from you again. Well, <laughs> does it get any better than that? Uh, well, that's going to do it for us today on Second Opinion Live. And until next time, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And for more about Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, visit our website at reachmd.com slash SOL. Feel free to give us a shout on Twitter, online, on Facebook. You can follow us on your iPhone. Until next time, I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. Stay clean. Watch those germs. Thank you for joining us and keep your radio dialed into our show at ReachMDXM160. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, everyone in the control room. Take care, everybody. Best show ever. <laughs> <laughs>